At this time each week, I almost invariably start my sermon with an illustration. Last week, I used the illustration of dolphins and how they have been known to prefer (laughs) captivity to being free in the oceans. And I was trying to get us to understand why the Galatians might have been tempted to turn from the freedom of Christ to living back under the law. I hope you found that illustration helpful. I will use almost any resource I can find to help communicate the gospel. Over the years, I've used books, I've used films, I've used news stories, works of art, music lyrics, quotes from famous people, occasionally examples from my own life. And what I look for in an illustration is something that helps to make clear a complicated truth. Or something that helps us to see a familiar passage in a new light. Or something that makes a gospel truth memorable, so we go on thinking about it during the week. Perhaps the best illustrations show us how to apply God's word to our daily lives. Now, I know that some of my illustrations are better than others, and none of them are perfect. Some of them you'll remember for a long time. Some of them you will instantly forget. Some of them are deliberately provocative, because I want you to talk about them over dinner after the service. Some of them a little bit distracting, and you actually forget what the message is all about. I make mistakes. I hope you'll forgive them. But I will use illustrations because with words and pictures, they are one of the best tools that I have to help me communicate the Bible. Now, illustrations have been used for centuries, whether it be the great word pictures of Spurgeon or the music of Wesley or the stained glass windows of the medieval church or the calligraphy of Celtic monks. But if you want the very first sermon illustrations, you've got to look in the Bible itself. In our passage today, Paul uses a sermon illustration. He gets to the end of this very difficult, complicated, doctrinal section of his letter, and he wants to make sure that the Galatians really understand what he's written. So he uses an illustration before he moves on to the practical instructions that he's going to end his letter with. Now, bearing in mind how complicated Paul's argument has been over recent weeks, I think it does us all good to stop and remind ourselves on where we have been. But in Paul's day, this section of the letter was even more important than that. Because in the ancient world, they used to love sitting around debating ideas. And they would often use fancy allegories to help convince their audiences. So Paul is using a technique here to show the Gentiles that he's writing to that he can cut it with the best of them. The gospel can stand even in the cut and thrust of an academic and philosophical debate. He is using a style that the Galatians understand, a style that they would have looked for. He is striving to do all that he can to get the message across. He is determined 
that the Galatians will see the truth. So what illustration does Paul use? Well, Paul doesn't have 24-hour news. He doesn't have access to the internet. He doesn't have a digital projector at his fingertips. So he reverts to what he knows best, what he has saturated his life with. He turns to a story from the Old Testament, the story of Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar in Genesis. In that story, Paul sees an allegory, an allegory that he thinks will help him reinforce what he's been trying to say to the Galatians. Notice this is only an allegory. In truth, Paul takes this story very much out of context. In the Old Testament, a very large part of this story is about how Hagar suffers at the hands of Abraham and Sarah and how God looks after her. He is the God who sees Hagar, who provides for Hagar. Paul doesn't mention that bit at all because it doesn't help him with what he's trying to do. He is using this story as an analogy, an illustration. We're not meant to take the picture any further than it's meant. So with that little warning made, let's remind ourselves of the story of Abraham, Hagar and Sarah, because only then will we be able to see how Paul uses it. I have used some illustrations from the website Free Bible Images for this. God told Abraham to look up at the stars and count them if he could. God promised that his offspring would be so many they would be difficult to count to. God promised Abraham that he would give the land of Canaan to his descendants to live. But Abraham and Sarai did not have children. So how could this be true? And they were both getting older. Sarai was 75 and Abraham, 85 years old. Sarai had an Egyptian maidservant called Hagar. She did not believe that God would give her children, so she suggested that Abraham took Hagar as his wife, and maybe Abraham would have a child this way. Abraham agreed, and Hagar was brought to him to be his wife. Sometime later, Hagar became pregnant when she knew she was having a baby with Abraham, she started gloating about it, and Sarai became upset. Sarai spoke to Abraham. I gave you Hagar, and now she despises me, she complained. Deal with Hagar as you think best, Abraham replied. Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she decided to run away into the desert. Exhausted and thirsty, she stopped by a well in the desert. An angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, What are you doing? I'm running away, she answered. Go back to Sarai, the angel said. You will have a son named Ishmael. He will have descendants that will be too many to count. Hagar obeyed and returned to live with Abram and Sarai. She stopped gloating that she was having a baby, and she served Sarai. Just as the angel had said, she had a son, and Abraham named him Ishmael. 
Some Arab peoples today claim to be descendants of Ishmael. Abraham now had a son, but he was not the son that God had promised to Abraham and Sarai. That son would arrive later by God miraculously opening Sarai's room. His name would be Isaac. So that is the Old Testament story that Paul uses for his allegory. I think we're familiar with it. Now let's see what Paul does with it. In the letter to the Galatians, there is a conflict between observing the law and following Jesus. At conversion, the Galatians have been told that if they confessed their sins and followed Christ, they had become acceptable to God. They had entered into his family. But since then, some Jewish nationalists have come into the region and said, oh, no, 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 no. Following Jesus is a good start, but you've got to follow all of the law as well. In fact, you need to become a Jew. You need to be circumcised if you really want to be acceptable to God. I hope that we've got this now. The conflict of this letter is all about how you enter God's family. Is it by faith in Christ or is it by faith in Christ plus keeping the law? In Paul's allegory, Hagar represents obeying the law and Sarah represents following Christ. Abraham had sex with Hagar because he and Sarah got desperate. And in their desperation, they stopped trusting God's promise and wrongly took things into their own hands. Their abuse of Hagar meant that Ishmael was born by human idea. The Greek says, born of the flesh. Whereas Isaac was born of God's promise. This is verse 23. Paul says that by trying to earn God's favour by following the law is like Abraham having sex with Hagar to try and make God's blessing come true. It is wrong. Instead, we have to trust the promise made to us by Christ and patiently follow him. And we know this is Paul's meaning because in verse 24, Paul describes Hagar as Mount Sinai, which is where Israel were given the law. So trying to become acceptable to God by following all the law is the same as Abraham trying to manufacture a child by having sex with Hagar. So far, so good. I think we can handle that bit. But Paul is only just warming up. He's going to extend this allegory even further. Paul knows that most of his people, the Jews, have rejected their Messiah. They didn't put their faith in Jesus. And still to this day, they devoutly practice the law, hoping that that will make them acceptable to God. So Paul says, Hagar represents Jerusalem, the capital city of the Jews. In Jerusalem, they're still trying to take matters of salvation into their own hands rather than trusting in God's promise. 
Paul then contrasts the earthly Jerusalem, the capital city of the Jews, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, the Jerusalem that is above God's people. The Jerusalem that's full of those who have trusted in Christ, who have died and will come back to earth when Christ returns. These are the people of faith, the people of promise, the people who wait, trusting in God. And Paul says, using a quote from Isaiah 54, that eventually there'll be far more members in this new heavenly Jerusalem than there are in the city of the Jews on earth. As more and more Gentiles enter into God's promise, his family will grow bigger and bigger and bigger until it is of a far greater size than the Jews could have ever imagined. If you and I believe in Jesus today, we are members of this city above. And a great future lies in store for us with Christ. This is what verses 26 and 27 are about. Paul, though, is still not finished. He's now going to stretch this allegory in another direction. Hagar was Sarah's slave. The child she bore was born into slavery, whereas Sarah was Abraham's rightful wife and Isaac was born into freedom. And we have seen throughout this letter how Paul has described trying to live under the law as a burden that is so heavy, it's like slavery. It's a restrictive, containing, suffocating life when it's taken out of its rightful context. The law was only meant to last between Moses and the coming of the Messiah. To try and live under the law now that Christ has come is unbearably difficult. The law was for the old covenant. Christ has brought us into the freedom of the new covenant. But Paul goes on. Because Hagar was a slave, when she became pregnant, she saw the opportunity to get one over her mistress, Sarah, and she began taunting her. It wasn't the wisest thing for Hagar to do, but when you have just been forced to sleep with a man who is not your husband, you are hurt, you are damaged. And you can well understand Hagar's pain boiling over to the point where she starts mocking Sarah. Many of us would have done exactly the same thing. And in verse 29, Paul speaks of the slave woman and her son persecuting Sarah and her son Isaac. He's probably referring to Genesis 21 verse 9 here, which says... Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had born to Abraham was mocking. So why does Paul mention this? That Hagar and her son were the persecutors and Sarah and her son Isaac were the persecuted? Well, because he sees a connection to what is happening in Galatia. From Jerusalem have come the Jewish nationalists. And they are persecuting the new converts in Galatia with their false teaching. 
They are pressurising them to become Jews and to live under the law. And to Paul, this is another example of how God's people of promise are persecuted by those who live according to the flesh, by those who live according to their own human desires. Now, in the Genesis story, Abraham and Sarah send Hagar and her son away at this point. And Paul's dearest wish is that the Galatians will do the same and send the Jewish nationalists away. He wants them to tell them to clear off. And he wants them to return to just trusting in the gospel, the gospel that he preached to them. Trusting in Christ and Christ alone. And that's what the last two verses of our reading are about. You'll be glad to know we have finally finished the allegory. I will let you decide whether this illustration makes it more understandable or not. Remember, we don't know our Old Testament anywhere near as well as Paul did. So this isn't as natural to us as it would be to him. But he is trying to do in this passage what I do week in, week out. He's trying to find a hook, a a device to help the message sink in. He's trying to give them something that they can take away so they can remember what he said. He's trying to give them a picture that they can live with in their minds so they can start to behave differently. Paul's point, as it has been throughout this whole letter, is that faith in Christ's death and resurrection is what makes you acceptable to God. When you believe in Jesus, the Spirit enters your heart and it brings you into God's one worldwide family. And from that moment on, all of the promises, all of the covenants of God are yours. We do not have to do anything more to earn God's favour and affection. We do not have to get circumcised. We do not have to offer sacrifices to obtain forgiveness. We do not have to wear clothes of only one fabric or wear our hair a certain way. We do not only have to eat kosher food and share table only with Jews. We do not have to sit inside on the Sabbath in fear we might break it. We do not have to attend Jerusalem and all of the festivals. We are free people. We are free, children of promise. God is with us today. He'll be forever faithful to us. He will grant us an eternal future. All we must do is remain faithful to him. This is what Paul has been laboring through this letter. This is what he hopes this illustration will convey. We are under Christ. We are not under the law. The law is redundant now. Now, if you've been with us over the previous seven weeks, this should just be a recap. This is what we've been labouring all of this time. This is what Paul has been trying to write in this letter. And next week, we'll begin his closing chapters where he says, now that you're free from the law, this is how you live by the Spirit. Being free from the law doesn't mean that you can now do whatever you like. Being free from the law means you are now free to live in the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And as you live in the power of the Holy Spirit, your life will start to be full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Next week, we're going to start looking at, now that we're free of the law, what does looking in the Spirit look like? And it's going to get really exciting. I love the end of Galatians. But before we get there, there are three specific challenges that I'd like us to draw from this passage today. The first challenge is this. Paul's allegory shows us that he expects, he expects God's people to be persecuted. Just as Hagar and Ishmael persecuted Sarah and Isaac, Paul believes Christians will be persecuted by those who live by the flesh or by human means. In fact, to Paul, if you're being persecuted, it's a sign you're on the right track. If anybody tells you that being a Christian is easy or is a constant happiness guarantee in life, ignore them because they are lying to you. The Bible never promises that being a Christian is easy. It promises that God will be with us in the trial and bring us through it. So if someone is making your life difficult for being a Christian, then good. Because it means they know who you follow. They wouldn't bother if they didn't. And that doesn't mean we should celebrate persecution because that would be perverse. But it means we should accept it. We must hold on, keep going, keep praying, and know that in the end our stand of faith will be vindicated. Paul in this allegory shows us that God's people will be persecuted. It's a sign that we're on the right track. The second challenge of this passage is that we should send bad influences away. Sarah got Abraham to send Hagar away. Paul uses this to tell the Galatians to send the nationalists away. They are nothing but troublemakers. Send them out. And we too are to distance ourselves from those who are a threat to our faith. Now that doesn't mean that we should never spend time with non-Christians, otherwise how on earth are we going to witness to them? Neither does it mean we should dismiss the Jews because God's heart breaks for them. And the instruction here is specifically aimed at the nationalists in Galatia, not to all Jews everywhere. But what this passage does mean is that if there are people in our lives, friends, neighbours, colleagues, who lead us astray, we need to be wise about that. If they tempt us to do wrong, if they're constantly trying to wear down our faith, if they are destructive to us, we are to distance ourselves. We have to protect ourselves. We have to make sure that we have more good influences in our lives than bad ones. And that includes what we watch on TV and what we engage with online. So yes, engage with non-Christians, but make sure you fellowship with Christians more to keep you on the right path. Send the bad influences away. And finally, I think this reading challenges us on how we are to live. Paul finishes in verse 31 by emphatically declaring that through Christ we are free people. And his inference is, now we have to live like free 
people. That freedom has to show itself in our lives. It has to equate to joy in difficult circumstances. It has to equate to hope when there's fear around. It has to equate to peace in our hearts so that when people see us, they see a difference. There is no greater witness to people than our attitudes, our words, our behaviour in daily life situations. Free living is missional. Now, it's very unlikely that any of us in this room are going to be tempted to be enslaved by the Jewish law again. We don't have the same problem that the Galatians did. But there are other things that can enslave us. We can become slaves to advertising, that we become like everyone else, always wanting something more, the latest must have. We can become slaves to social media, getting our self-esteem from comments and likes rather than from God. We can become slaves to emails, never being able to leave the office behind. We can become slaves to political allegiances. We can become slaves to the idols of finance and work and career. We can become slaves to fear and hysteria, especially with coronavirus spreading. Christ did not win our freedom, so then we could become slaves to something else. He won our freedom so that we could live a free life, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And still today, perhaps even more today, with our epidemic of anxiety and mental health issues, living a free, joyful, peaceful, hopeful life is the best witness that we have to our community. Christ has set us free. We are free people. Paul says, now live like him.